0: So it turns out that the that how fast you get th- you burn through your fuel as a star depends really sensitively on the on the mass of the star. Mm. So a very high mass star has lots more fuel to work with, but it gets through it really, really, really fast. Yeah. So low mass stars, there are stars still shining today that. Started that were that were formed in the first billion years of the universe or less. Um, some of those are still are still going, mm. and they can keep going for a very very long time.
1: I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiment
0: the game I play is a very interesting one
2: its imagination in a tight straitjacket
1: the beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it but the way those atoms are put together what I always think should be the basis of education is not answers but questions we should teach kids how to question
0: Well, I'm uh, I'm Nick Tothill and I'm an astronomer in the School of Computing, Engineering, and Maths, and I'm uh, currently the director of the Western Sydney University Penrith Observatory.
2: Ah, awesome!
1: We've been out to the um, observatory, uh, and it's great out there. We had Aim the Hoarder on, as well as oh, yeah. Elena ha- Elena Hyde from the observatory. So, um, really interesting people to talk to. Yeah. Um, so, there's been some interesting uh, developments recently. <laughs> Yeah, we, we we got you
2: on because uh, obviously um, you probably have a, an opinion on the sorry a, an opinion on the recent finding of water on Mars. And actually, I think you had you were asked to comment on the Gizmodo article that was recently written about it as well. Yeah, well, I should I should probably mention
0: I'm not a Martian geologist, or even still less a <laughs> Martian glaciologist, which I guess is now a new speciality. Um, but yeah, when when I saw that uh, when I saw that discovery coming in, it was really it was really pretty amazing. Yeah, um, because you know we have we have liquid water under the Earth's ice caps in Antarctica, mm. uh, and it turns out we have it on Mars as well. In fact, when I read it, it was like, oh. Of course, there could be. Yeah, I'd never thought of it like that. Yeah,
2: same. Like I'd heard but that they'd have like frozen water yeah. on on Mars and the ice caps, yeah. and that for a long time and things, but it, it never even thought about it underneath. Because there's other places like you're mentioning today, to me, Hamid, about Europa and things like this as well, mm. which have oceans under under ice in other parts of the solar system.
0: Yeah, we're pretty yeah. sure that there are that Europa is essentially essentially a whole ocean. The ocean covers pretty much the whole moon yeah. under the ice, and there may be something like that on Enceladus as well, around Saturn's yeah. moons. Uh, we know there are lakes on Titan, but they're made of hydrocarbons. Yeah. So it would be like a lake of Methane. diesel or well, okay. like DG, I guess. Yeah, um, And uh, kind of like the size of the Great Lakes.
2: No oil companies. <laughs> <or> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was not <just> saying, you're <laughs> on <any> trips yet? <laughs> yeah. We invest like, all <laughs> the money, <laughs> <and> take <they can laughs> <have> it renewable
1: <laughs> resources, and send it to like, the moons. Yeah. Oh, that's
2: what what are some of the details um you may know more than me but I, of the water finding recent finding of water on mars i think it's i read somewhere that the waters they think about a meter deep and it's mostly kind of like yeah. sludgy uh... well
0: we don't we don't really know terribly much about it we can see the horizontal extent of it we can see that the lake's about 20 kilometers across which is a good size yeah Um, we know that the depth has to be at least a few tens of centimeters, Mm. otherwise you wouldn't get the radar echo. So this is actually, uh, this was found by doing radar studies. So you actually do radar observations of the surface, which is how you find the lakes under the South Pole, under the Antarctic ice cap. So it's the same technique. And, uh, and you need at least about 10 a few tens of centimeters of water to be able to generate the echo that's what you actually see
2: is that because of the the length of the wave or why yeah Yeah. it's a it's a pretty
0: long wave so you just need a you just need a long enough a long enough uh water thing to actually reflect it back
1: why do you think this this wasn't discovered earlier is it people just didn't look or was Um, there technological limitations this is well. This is already right at the at the limit of the
0: technology that they've got. I mean, the uh, so this was first suggested um, apparently about thirty years ago. Somebody was suggesting, hey, you've got. We think we've got water ice caps on Mars. You could have lakes underneath, and they ran some numbers, and it seemed plausible, but nobody had actually found it. And this. Um, and actually finding these this lake was right at the limit of what you can do with mm. the radar instrument that's on the satellite mm. um it's it's basically about it's about as um as small as you can see with that radar mm. and uh there are a lot of limitations compared to how you would do it on earth so it was a really it was a hard thing to do so it's it's taken a while
1: yeah um it's uh sorry you're going I can't I was going to, yeah. So that how many said like Obviously, was the, my next question was: Okay, this radar has to be on something. You said it was on satellites, and they have satellites orbiting um, Mars. When did they install this radar? I'm just curious. Was it something new that they just sent off recently? Uh, or?
0: It's the the Mars Express mission has been around for a while, yeah. so it's not it's not a very new thing. It's mm. uh, it's really people using a satellite that's been there for
1: a little while mm. to do something new. Mm. Okay, um, let's move on to the implications of the finding. Yeah,
2: why 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 are we so excited about this discovery, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, because in the in the immediate
0: in the immediate term, what it tells us about is about water on Mars, about the history of water on Mars. We know that there was liquid water on Mars because we can see old dry lake beds, we can see old rivers. Mm. Um, you you look at this landscape on Mars, mm. and it was created by water a long, long time ago. Mm. So we know there has been liquid water on Mars, and there basically there isn't any more. It's all, but we know that it's locked up in the ice caps. Um, so when you think about, so one of the things that you want to understand is is how the is where the more water on Mars went, mm. and how it operates now. Mm. Does it does it all just sit there on the poles, or does it move around a little bit? Is there mm. actually a little bit of water activity? And, of course, the, the elephant in the room is, Does what can this possibly tell us about whether there could have been life on Mars previously? Mm. Um, because if there was a whole load of liquid water on Mars, could there have been life? And that's, yeah. uh, that's, um, that's a big question. And you could even, if you really wanted to speculate, you could even say, well, if there was life on Mars, could it be surviving? Mm. Um, that, would be, that would be pretty impressive. Yeah. But, um, but that, but this but now we know that if we're interested in understanding liquid water on Mars and trying to understand what that meant for life, now we know where to look, mm. um, and we can even and of course the other thing is that they basically didn't have a lot of data and they found a lake. Yeah. What we haven't done is map the whole of Mars this way, so there could be a lot more. In fact, mm. the fact that they took it, looked at a little bit of Mars and found a lake kind of at a very basic level, suggests that there probably are quite a lot yeah. more.
2: If you got lucky that that early with yeah, such limitations on are, the equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Then
0: either you got really lucky mm. or there's a lot of liquid water sitting under these ice caps Yeah, and it could even be connected. We think that the subglacial lakes in Antarctica, some of them have channels between them, which are just kind of subglacial rivers. Yeah, um, So could you have those on Mars? You could actually have a whole hidden a whole hidden hydrosphere of, of water yeah. moving around underneath the ice And caps. like you say,
2: like, rover expeditions are incredibly expensive and mm-hmm. take a long time to set up. So, But now that we know we have a place where we can go and look and find liquid ro- uh, water, that's very tantalizing kind of
1: destination.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah.
1: They send those rovers to find indications of life, right? And, and mm-hmm. getting them actually on Mars without being destroyed is a huge challenge. Yeah, um, and, and also,
0: uh, and if you think it's easy, just look at the numbers that uh, that didn't work. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's easy to get blasted and go, Oh, yeah, you just landed on Mars, and then one yeah. of them crashes, and you go, Oh, oh
1: you no. mean that's hard? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think recently they have um, almost like a drone thing that they're trying to send off to Mars. Oh, Thunder Foot, yeah, Thunderfoot, yeah, Thunderfoot was covering that. Um, Um, And even that, it can only be up in the air for like a minute or 30 seconds. It can't really survey um, the surface of the Mars. But this technology seems to be a great way of probing um, uh, the presence of water um, on Mars. Now, uh, some people might be listening to this and say, how could life even survive on Mars to this day? Like, that's that's crazy. The harsh, like Mars is basically the, the most um arid desert you can think of even if there is water that doesn't have oxygen um little atmosphere to protect it mm, from the atmosphere but people um may not be aware of the fires that exist on earth we have and yeah. we have um the, what, what's that thing called the tardigrade or what have you yeah the tardigrades yeah.
0: but also they just the species of bugs that survive in some very very unpromising places mm. And um, you've got the halophiles, which live in incredibly salty brines. You've mm. got thermophiles who live in very hot conditions. Mm. You've got the ones who can live in incredibly cold conditions. Then they
2: also find some around Fukushima that can live in with high radioactivity yeah. as well.
0: Um, yeah. 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 I haven't seen the Fukushima ones, but I remember yeah. there, are, there's, there are bugs living in the in the flooded Three Mile Island reactors mm. that, you know, that were flooded when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, so. So, it's yes, it's, it, Mars is not a hospitable environment for life, wow. particularly complex life. Um, there are things on Earth that survive in extremely harsh environments. Mm. So what you could maybe be looking at is that something could you could have had primitive life on Mars mm. which has managed to cling on through these mm. these incredibly tough environments
2: I guess one implication we haven't really discussed as well is about the possibility of future travel a lot of people are you know they've got all these Mars expeditions mm. being planned what is the finding of this water does it have any implications for travel
1: or I was just going to ask before before we change topics yeah. keep that question in mind uh, <laughs> <laughs> that um, I think one more thing that implication of this find, if we do find life on Mars is the idea of panspermia where did life come from right Right. because if asteroids hit um, planets you know like I I, I don't know if this is correct but I've heard from people that if an asteroid hits the Earth the debris can also reach the moon um, if it's big enough so it's possible that an asteroid has hit uh, Mars and then piece of that debris has made it through space and actually hit Earth and then that's seeded life here on Mars, uh, on earth? Well, we know that we know that
0: some pieces of Mars do end up on earth. Um, oh. that So there are meteorites that were found in Antarctica where you actually do the analysis and you realize this isn't just, this isn't your normal little piece of solar system debris. This mm. is actually a little piece of Mars rock. And so that's actually happened. Something hit Mars, threw up a, a debris plume and these things just floated around the solar system for However, many millions or billions of years until they eventually fell down on an ice sheet mm. in Antarctica. <laughs> um so that that, that does happen. Yeah. And so then, you know, then but then of course it could go on the one hand it could go either way. If that actually does work, then you know, does did Earth contaminate Mars or did Mars
2: contaminate? Yeah, Earth? I was just about to say that. <laughs> it's a very difficult question. Yeah. Like imagine imagine that you go to Mars and you find traces of life and you can test that life and say, Oh, it's it has DNA, like on Earth. Yeah. How do you make that inference then that that's because life was seeded from Mars or could it be a contamination that we're brought to Mars? Mm. Or could it be yeah. a con- it like from Earth? Or OTS, yeah, so, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, yeah, that would be <laughs> tricky, wouldn't it? <laughs> 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 but uh. it? It would be cool if we find a new, life, uh, a new type of life that doesn't have DNA or RNA. Oh, that'd be and We'd have a completely different way of, you know, of information transfer.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, that, that'd
2: that would be just be, a, be a hard well, thing to do. So yeah, so maybe let's jump back into that travel question now. Yeah. Um, so, because a lot of people are discussing going to Mars in the future and setting up colonies. Obviously, the fact that we find liquid water on Mars is kind of promising for the for that type of thing. Or am I missing the mark um, there?
0: Well, if I, if I was on Mars
2: and I wanted so, to. Um, I wanted sorry, we're not getting level. A
0: few moments later. Um, do you want so, to do the yeah. question again or shall I it? Let me do it, it again. Straight in?
2: Okay. Uh, yeah. Take three on the water <laughs> on Mars question. <laughs> um, I said it good the first time as well. Okay, yeah. let me. Okay, so. We're thinking. Lots of people are planning trips to go to Mars, right, and yeah. live on on Mars and form colonies on Mars. And obviously, water is a major concern there. Is there are there any implications for this finding in terms of colonization of Mars and future travel?
0: Um, well, if if I was on Mars and I wanted to I wanted to get liquid water, I would sit on top of the polar ice cap and I would melt the ice. Mm. Um, because that's what we do in Antarctica. Um, in Antarctica, you you just melt some snow. Hmm. Um, and there are some pretty sophisticated ways of doing that. Uh, drilling it out of one of these subglacial lakes strikes me as as not the best way to do it. Because first of all, you've got to drill a kilometer or more down, hmm. and secondly, we um, it's entire we we're pretty sure that the water is incredibly briny. Because that's how it would stay liquid, mm. and the and it's not just sodium chloride; it's um, perchlorates of several different elements, um, which I think you guys are, are better chemists than I am. But mm. I'm 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 guessing not very drinkable. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and it, and also there's as these as the discoverers have said, it's. Um, this may not be you know, if you're if you're imagining some beautiful gin clear pond, it may not be that it might actually be what they actually call sludge yeah. in the science paper. In a and I think it's a great, not a great exactly victory. Not exactly a scientific term, but Oh, I think it's I think it's a great victory for, for scientific ac- accessibility because yeah. I was reading the editorial accompanying it and it talked about saturated sediments and the I was thinking well, how what saturated yeah. sediments what is that and then i and then I read the actual science paper and it said it could be sludge yeah. sludge okay I, I know what that means yeah. um so basically it's until until you actually get get understand more about it it could be a a lake of hmm. of beautiful clear water or it could be a layer of
1: thick briny sludge that's funny it's which, it's it's funny that scientists in their pursuit to be clear as uh, and as precise as as they can be make it really convoluted in the process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well,
0: I, when I read saturated sediments, I thought, could I, is it more like kind of wet sand or clay? Yeah. Or and like, it's like sludge. <laughs> okay, you put a picture it. in your head. Got it, yes. <laughs> yes. Um.
2: Maybe we can um, move on to your journey a little bit now yeah. and, and talk about, because that's where we usually start with our guests, cause this show Shows, um, it shows about trying to tell people what it's like being a researcher and being a scientist. So, what got you into um, like astrophysics or astronomy, or into science um, in general? You can start as yeah. early as you want, as well. You know, <laughs> like you don't have to start with your PhD. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't
0: because yeah. um, when I was a kid, I got a book about astronomy, and I thought that was just the best thing ever, and. Uh, at some point i found out that there were people who actually did this you know that i mean you grew up and you had to get a job there were some people who did astronomy for a job I was like, okay that's what i'll do yeah and um and then from there on i just that was what i wanted to do so i went off and i did i did physics at university then um i went and did research for a year in germany and found out doing astronomy and found out yeah this really is fun because you know you always wonder yeah um, it's like is this as much fun as it sounds
2: stuff can look fun on the outside yeah. and then when and you then actually you get into it like this is you know. terrible and
0: actually I, I found i really enjoyed doing it yeah and so then i um then i did my did my master's degree at jodrell bank uh doing radio astronomy and then did uh did my phd in in submillimeter wave astronomy looking at um looking at the very high-frequency radio emission from gas clouds in the Milky Way where stars are forming. Hmm. And uh, that was in London. And then from there, I bounced around a little bit. I went to Canada and then the U.S. with side trips to Antarctica, uh, back to the U.K., and then I came out to Australia.
1: Tell tell Um, us about your trips to Antarctica. What was that like? um,
0: That was a lot of fun uh, because it turns out that Antarctica is a great place to put telescopes and um why is that because depends a bit on the telescope but mainly because it's dry Mm. it's very cold and very dry because all of the water vapor in the atmosphere has already frozen out and is sitting under
2: your feet so so does that mean it's dry it's less humid so there's less obviously we just said water in the atmosphere makes cleaner viewing
0: Yeah. yeah yeah so for the so for some quite specific types of astronomy the water vapour in the atmosphere actually absorbs the, the light that we're trying to look at. Mm. And so if we can go somewhere very dry, mm. like a desert or an ice cap, uh, then it's a great place to put a telescope.
2: Mm. I have a practical question. Um, so a lot of people might not realise, but when you have telescopes, you have to acclimatise them to their environment. So mm. if a telescope is really warm and it's kind of like cold outside, that can warp the lens and affect yeah. the viewing... What's it like acclimatising a scope in Antarctica? Or, or how do you deal with that problem? Or do you just have to put well, up with the cold? Or do you keep the telescope warm? Or what do, you, what do you do?
0: You generally try to keep everything, trying to let the telescope go to its environmental temperature. Um, once you've got it there, actually everything t- kind of helps you out a little bit because you don't get extreme extreme diurnal cycles in Antarctica. Mm. Day and, at the South Pole, day and night, don't count Mm. so you're not going to get it suddenly getting cold at sundown well you do but sundown Mm. happens once a year um so it's um so in that sense it's quite good for for the temperature stuff on the other hand when you're designing it for the first time um you have to think quite hard about how it's going to work in about you know minus uh -50 degrees. Yeah. And uh, luckily I didn't do that design work my yeah. boss did. And, and he did a very nice job. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's but awesome. So, yeah.
1: so when you're using the telescope are you it is obviously the I Maybe mean, not obviously, but the observatory itself would be kept cold because you don't want to have a warm environment. Well, the telescope sits sits on top of a building, okay. and so it
0: just sits Remote. out, oh, sits okay. out there. Okay. So I have a warm building, right, right. and well, and and I can sit in the warm building and do stuff, and then the telescope sits on the sits on the outside, okay. and uh, I just I just got cold when I had to go and <laughs> yeah. mess with stuff on the <laughs> telescope, which yeah. was a little more often than I might've liked. Yeah, right. but, um, how long were you in
2: Antarctica for? Uh,
0: well, I was there for a year um, where I basically did the summer to learn how to use the telescope and then did the winter time, which is a nine month stint. Mm. And that's the winter time is when you actually do the work right. and the summertime is maintenance and just making sure changing out spares and stuff. Yeah.
1: Give us some of your highlights, some things that stick out in your mind <laughs> from that experience. <laughs>
2: Um, I, I'd like to hear highlights and lowlights. Like, like, <laughs> what were the things that were amazing that, you know, you were have, uh, one of the select few um, people in the world to have seen and what are yeah. the, some of the things that were terrible that you're probably one of the few <laughs> select people in the world to have experienced?
0: Well, uh, one of the highlights was uh, actually the um, uh, just... Uh, Looking up at the sky, seeing the the aurora, the, yeah. the southern lights, are moving around, and just deciding, yeah. I don't need to go anywhere for a while and just lay down on my back on the snow, uh, just watching these, uh, just watching these, this green kind of knots and ropes moving across the sky, That's cool. and then you kind of look up and remember that they're at about hundred kilometers altitudes. Yeah. Those are really big, yeah. and they're moving really fast. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was, and just just looking out over over the um over the over the ice cap it's completely flat it's just this completely flat snow surface there's no dirt there's just nothing but white yeah. and a and a sky and um and seeing that in the dark with in the under a full moon is um yeah that was that was pretty awesome
2: yeah that's cool
0: um and the uh, uh the low lights were stuff like yeah well, at one point, it was just as basic as once i you know, i I got my uh, uh, um i left a, a i left a little little gap between my scarf and my goggles on the walk back from because the the telescope's about a kilometres walk from the station Jeez. and uh, and I was walking about a kilometer into a bit of a wind and i th- i thought oh man i I left a gap oh it'll be all right and uh you know walked there and I uh, ended up with like a a very low grade frostbite yeah. just across Jeez. the bridge of my nose, and I couldn't yeah. wear my glasses for about three days. Jeez, oh, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a low light. Yeah. <laughs> um, so sometimes, yeah, you just do
2: get really cold. Yeah. And I, I guess those yes. things would impact you in lots of tiny little ways that you don't even think about, just like time to get dressed and time to get ready and prepare, and everything would be. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And um, if we ever had, um, if we ever had a, had a had a power cut because we were running generators 24-7. Mm. But if we ever had a power cut, then I had about 20 minutes to get out to the telescope, power everything down safely, and phone it in, um, which was quite tight, especially if it happened yeah. in the middle of the night. Um, and uh, and I once asked the station manager, look, what what, what actually would happen if... if uh, do, you, do we really have to get the generators back up that fast? And he said, after 40 minutes, I start deciding whether or not we we go to our contingency plans for you know basically living in tents for the rest of the year. Like, oh, okay then.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Is is that because what the generators would freeze or
0: things won't be? Basically, it's uh, if what you would have to do is you'd have to warm up the summer camp, which are these insulated tents. Then not as bad as it sounds, but you would have to start warming it up, and it's way easier to start warming that up while mm. while things are still warm. Mm. Yeah. Rather than when everything's gone cold. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, the contingency
2: plans, I didn't know a lot about the contingency plans, <laughs> but I think they were pretty scary. It's good, yeah. <laughs> well, it's good that you didn't
1: know about it because you didn't have yeah. to use it. <laughs> I also
2: imagine getting back to what you said about the highlights. Um, I've been lucky enough to see some night skies away from cities oh. in the outback and, and things like this, and uh, they're next level. Like yeah. It's the type of thing where you look up and you go, oh, my God, what is that? <laughs> and then you realise it's like the Milky Way, and it's, <laughs> that's what the night sky looks like when you get away from all the bright lights of a yeah. city. Yeah. Uh, and I can imagine that just that would have been next level again in, in somewhere like Antarctica where you don't have yeah. the atmospheric disruption or no lights at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you'd have these, these really great, just kind of very yeah. clear nights with, with nothing moving around, and uh, and then if you had a, um, if you had a full moon, then it was like being outside in the middle of the day. You could see absolutely everything. Yeah. And if you had no moon, it was, it was pretty dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, and the,
1: the southern lights must have been almost psychedelic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so they they were,
0: <laughs> and we had a good we had a good year for them. Because oh, um, it depends on how the sun's going that year. Right. If the sun if there's a high solar activity, then you have a lot, a more, yeah. and if it's low solar activity, you can hardly see anything. Yeah. Which which be a bit, yeah. that'd be, that'd be a bit disappointing. <laughs> it I would think. be yeah. <laughs> it's like my
1: year at the South Pole. I can't see the can't, you see, can't the aurora, see the yeah. light. <laughs> you just See it on one day. Um, speaking about the sun. Um, I think that's a good... Well, yeah, you mentioned before as well, um, uh, you
2: mentioned before that in when you're going through your journey uh, that you had done some research on stars and star formation. formation. From
1: yeah. galaxy gas clouds. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because
2: stars have a life cycle, don't they? So yeah. um, maybe run us through the life cycle of a star. So, so stars
0: start out as big clouds of gas, so in a in a galaxy, you have a bunch of stars, which are the things you can easily see, and you have big clouds of gas and dust, and you can see those as the the dark spots. So if you look at the if you go out if you go out somewhere nice and dark, mm. and you look at the Milky Way, the first thing you see is there's this incredible bright band across the sky. Mm. The next thing you see is there seem to be holes in it, mm. and they're not holes in the Milky Way; they're just dark clouds. Mm. Yeah, and that's. Um, that's actually the, um, the the shape that um, indigenous people had the as emu. an emu yeah. in the sky. It was actually made up of those dark clouds. And so those dark clouds are where stars come from. So stars, so as star formation is a simple process that uh, you start off with a cloud of gas and nothing else is happening. Well, gravity is still working. All the atoms in it want to kind of attract each other. So the whole gas cloud kind of falls into itself and becomes from a very big very tenuous very cold gas cloud it turns into a very small very hot very dense gas cloud which is basically a star so in th- at the at this really basic level star formation is an incredibly mm. easy process to explain um and then actually the question is well why doesn't it work quite that way? And that's where things you get into some issues around angular momentum transport and magnetic fields and fun stuff like that.
2: Let's just quickly go back. So, if the if the dust is condensing mm. under gravity, why doesn't it just keep condensing? What stops it kind of condensing indefinitely?
0: They, because it turns into a star. Yeah. So, so there's <laughs> so I what, guess there's yeah. like
2: a a fight then. So, yeah. so when it when it condenses enough, it turns into a star. Work is through that. What turns on. What, so what happens to so the point? So when
0: something gets dense enough as things get denser they get hotter. And and once something gets dense enough, then all of the atoms are all of the atoms are hitting each other and eventually the atoms are hitting each other hard enough that the hydrogen atoms fuse together, they stick together and become helium atoms, which is exactly what happens in a hydrogen bomb. So at that point you start releasing a lot of heat and a lot of energy and everything starts moving fast and what happens is that you is that that energy release pushes back against the gravity Mm. and at some point you reach the stage where the two are in equilibrium um so one way of thinking about it is that the gravitational collapse is halted by the energy release from nuclear fusion. Yeah. Another way of thinking about it is that it's actually a gigantic hydrogen bomb. And if you imagine a hydrogen bomb where the fireball is expanding out until it gets to the point where it wants to fall back, mm. and you just hold it in that balance. So it's like these
2: two forces are kind yeah. of like fighting each other and just yeah. holding this stable and that's structure star. that we call a star.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that and that equilibrium lasts for millions of years for big stars and billions of years for small stars.
1: So um And that's because uh bigger stars burn hotter and so the the energy to actually maintain the energy coming out of the star, the center of the star is Mm. Burns quicker and so that's no longer available and so it collapses on itself. Yeah. So
2: so yeah, so so what you're saying is the the life of a star then it it, it gets birthed when this uh, matter condenses enough to get the energy going and, and yeah. it lives while we're maintaining this equilibrium. And as Hamid just said, once once that fuel of the fire, all that matter burns out, mm. I guess the equilibrium can't be maintained anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So you run out you run out of fuel.
0: So that's the point where you figure, okay, it's all over, except that actually a whole load of stuff happens in the late stages where suddenly you start uh, you start fusion reactions with helium and then all kinds of other stuff, and you get explosions. And so different stars, based mainly on how heavy they are, will have very different end stages of their life. Some of them just kind of go dark and that's it. Some of them turn into white dwarfs. Some of them turn into neutron stars. Some of them yeah. turn into black holes. Yeah, supernova explosions, novas, yeah. all sorts of. This,
1: this sounds just like human just beings, plan. you know. Some people yeah. die at an elderly age and they've yeah. had a nice, easy life, and then you have rock stars that are coke yeah. <laughs> and party hard. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. go out with a bang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so
0: yeah, the, the 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 high mass stars, yeah, live fast, die young, and leave a good looking corpse. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, t- so you mentioned that stars that the birth of a star doesn't always happen, that there are different variables that actually are involved in initiating that process. And you mentioned a couple, could you just?
2: Yeah, Yeah. I thought maybe we could work through them a little bit in a little bit more detail. So maybe let's start with the, not with the rock stars, cause then we bang. can end the conversation yeah. with a yeah. bang. So how about <laughs> we start <laughs> with like these low mass stars, right? Yeah. So we've got stars that have low mass in them. So, the, so they're, they're not gonna burn as hot so it's kind of counterintuitive, I guess. You think low mass, low matter, they're probably going to have a short life, but they don't actually burn as hot, so they have the longest life, don't they? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it turns out that the that how fast you get th- you burn through your fuel as a star depends really sensitively on the on the mass of the star. Mm. So a very high mass star. Has lots more fuel to work with, but it gets through it really, really, really fast. Yeah. So low mass stars, there are stars still shining today that started that were that were formed in the first billion years of the universe or less. Um, some of those are still are still going, mm. and they can keep going for a very, very long time, um, which is good because you know that's one of the ones that that's the kind of thing we live we live around. We're not the sun isn't the lowest mass kind of star, but mm-hmm. it's kind of moderate mass. It's got billions of years to work with, mm. which is good because we needed billions of years to get here. It mm-hmm. seems so that that's that's worked out pretty well for us, and we've still got a few billion years um, of uh, and the, of of the sun doing its thing. And the sun is also very stable. It does mm. change, but it doesn't change fast. It doesn't seem to change a lot.
2: Mm. Um, so that's good for us. Um, so, so what happens then for these small to medium mass stars? Hmm. What happens when one of these stars dies?
0: Well, what happens is that as it gets as it gets older, it eventually becomes a red giant, and what's really happening is just the, that equilibrium is being disturbed, and it's finding a new a new phase, a kind hmm. of a new equilibrium, where. It's still producing energy, but it gets much bigger. But because it's much bigger, it's actually much cooler because it's not producing enough energy to stay. To keep something that big that mm. hot, mm. so that's when we become a red giant. And when the sun becomes a red giant, then the sun, well, the Earth will end up inside the sun. Mm. But so it expands that
2: much. Then it expands
0: past the orbit of the Earth. Wow. Um, so that's so that happens, and then that lasts for for a little while. It doesn't take it doesn't last terribly long. Yeah. And along the way, after it's been a red giant for a while, it moves into a phase where it actually starts pumping a lot of its mass out of the star. Mm. This turns out to be an, a really interesting phase for the galaxy because then a lot of the stellar mass is returned to the gas in the galaxy. Mm. And it's not just returned as 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 the way it was before. It's been enriched with elements like carbon, nitrogen. Yeah, well and I was oxygen. just
2: about to ask that. Yeah, so it's emitting like uh, its constituents out mm. into the galaxy. So so what is that? You just said the carbon and yeah.
0: So the so the the gas that turned that creates the star is almost entirely hydrogen and helium mm. with a few little bits and pieces. But the stuff that comes out of the star at the end of its life mm. has a lot more of the more interesting elements in it, like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. We don't get the really heavy stuff. That has to come from supernovae. Mm -hmm. So up to a
2: certain point on the periodic table. Yeah.
0: yeah. Then, so most of the carbon, I mean, if you think about all the stuff that's doing most of the work in your body, Mm. most of it is those comparatively light elements. It's not the the iron and Mm. stuff that you need it. It's mainly carbon and oxygen, Mm. stuff like that. And most of that actually comes from these low-mass stars. That's cool. Just pushing it out at the end of their life and then that can get turned into new
1: new stars just just a question so in the universe are there more low mass stars than they are like mm. these larger stars because yeah. I'm just thinking if if life comes from these low mass um, elements from the periodic table, th- th- it must mean that there's more of that available in the universe, maybe, and that's, th- and that's provided opportunity for life to evolve with these elements, whereas if it was more uh, higher mass elements, um, th- maybe those are more rare and therefore there wasn't an opportunity for life to evolve with those. Yeah, um,
0: so you have far more low-mass stars than high-mass stars. It's much easier to make them, and of course they last longer. Mm. Um, so that also gives you a kind of a lifetime effect. Um, and that does mean that the, the composition of the universe is much more biased towards light stuff than heavy stuff. Mm. It's much harder to make the really heavy elements. But as the universe keeps, keeps evolving... Um, more and more uh, heavier and heavier elements get made because, yeah. you know, the universe has ways to turn, has quite efficient ways to turn light elements into heavy elements, but there aren't really many ways to turn heavy elements into light elements. I, yeah,
2: I wanted to zoom in on that a little bit because I, I think we kind of glossed over in a bit because it's actually really amazing, isn't it? A lot, like a lot of people who are listening to this may not even realise it, that they may not have even thought where do the atoms come from, from the periodic table, but they're actually formed right like if you wind the universe back yeah. to when stars were just being formed there was just hydrogen right
0: well if you wind the universe back to the big bang hmm. then the big bang creates hydrogen helium and tiny tiny amounts of lithium and l- even tiny amount of beryllium
2: so these are the yeah. first four elements on the periodic table yeah. right very um, light ones. yeah one yeah. proton two protons three protons four protons
0: yeah yeah and if you think about what you can do with hydrogen helium lithium and beryllium yeah it's not form, a whole lot
2: but you can form stars but you can make stars and it and, turns yeah. out
0: that stars are basically these tools to make the universe more interesting molecular factories <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well they're atomic factories yeah well, um some of the cooler stars have molecules in their atmospheres as well things yeah. like titanium dioxide oh, really? um actually you find it within
1: within the cooler red stars the red dwarfs yeah that's really interesting ah, that's um just, so we talked about how these stars are born now stars also initiate the life or the explosion of one star initiates the, the, the life of or the birth of another star could you is um, that is that the case
0: we we, we think so yeah. um that's actually still still a matter with a little bit of um, um it's still some debate as to exactly how that works um but it does appear that the way to when once you have a one of these gas one of these gas clouds sitting in space, um, one of the the, uh, the best way to actually get it to form stars is to compress it to give it a bit of a push, and one of the ways of doing that is the is the shock wave from a supernova.
2: That's a nice segue because we talked about the low mass stars and and how they die. Maybe we can talk about supernova now because it's basically the death of a high mass star, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So a high mass star will um, when it it will, what it will do is it will It will start burning, not just, uh, it won't just fuse hydrogen into helium, it'll fuse helium into other elements. It'll form carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, silicon, and so on. It gets all the way up. Is that because it's
2: got ion. enough energy to push those protons together? Yeah, it's basically yeah. the mass. It's yeah. just so heavy
0: that it can, the pressures at the at the center can be high enough to actually push yeah. you know, a bunch of helium atoms together, not just hydrogen. Yeah. And so you're able to carry out extra nuclear reactions and those extra nuclear reactions actually keep it going past the point once it's run out of of the hydrogen that it can burn it can now burn other things and so that keeps it going but for less and less time Hmm. so it's kind of keeps going in the new and every time this happens it kind of you get a flash and it changes a little bit and eventually it gets to the point where it's got where in the middle of it it's iron And it turns out that as you keep fusing elements together and making them heavier, you get energy out. But iron is the most stable nucleus. And so if you want to make anything heavier than iron, you're not getting energy out anymore. You're sucking energy in. At which point the star suddenly goes from, from releasing energy to pulling energy in. And the whole whole equilibrium is completely thrown out very, very very quickly.
2: What's very, very quickly in lights. stellar terms?
0: Well, a, 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 a supernova, in terms of the time it takes between running out of fuel and the supernova happening, I'm not sure. Yeah. But the supernova itself happens in, happens in kind of less than an hour.
2: Wow! Um, and then I thought you were yeah, going to say
0: weeks, and I was getting yeah, they, ready to say, "Wow, that's yeah. so yeah. short." But, but an hour. The, I mean, the expansion yeah. will it will take as long as it takes. Yeah. But that initial explosion is mm. incredibly fast. Yeah, because it's
1: basically the whole star. Yeah. So it's does does that explosion leave anything behind, or does it just vaporize and it send everything out? Cause so I it pushes
0: a lot of stuff out, yeah. and you—that's why, um, super you have these objects called supernova remnants which are these gigantic bubbles of gas uh, that are the 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 stuff that's ejected out but you still have the core of the star left in there so what's Mm. actually happens essentially you've got an an iron core and the star has collapsed onto it and bounced and that's kind of how the supernova works Mm. but when it's actually bounced off the core it's compressed the core as well Mm. and the core gets compressed into either a neutron star or a black hole what's a neutron star well a neutron star is a neutron star is made of a material where everything has been compressed so much that atoms basically don't exist anymore so an atom is a bunch is a nucleus with a bunch of electrons around it and the electrons when you push on an atom the electrons push back and so the the atom seems to have a kind of size yeah well, if you actually squish the electrons hard enough, mm-hmm. then they get squished into the nucleus and they combine with the protons to form neutrons and instead of having ele- having atoms which are basically empty space, you just have a whole load of atomic nuclei, basically all neutrons. You kind of get a fluid of pure neutrons. Yeah, that's that's which an, is it's interesting. Because because an <laughs> atom
2: is a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people understand that that uh, an atom is a proton or, or and neutrons in a nucleus, and the electrons are around the outside. But a lot of people don't understand that that distance between the yeah. nucleus and the electron is huge. And I've heard lots of analogies, like um, you know, a, a tennis ball in the middle of a, a huge stadium is like the tennis ball yeah. is the the nucleus of the atom and the electrons around, floating around the seats of the stadium. Like that's, that's the distance we're talking about here. And you're saying is a neutron star is when we're pushing the, those, that seats around right up close to that tennis ball in the middle of the stadium. So it's incredibly dense. Or it's from going
0: to, or it's what would be like going from the tennis ball in the middle of the stadium to a stadium full of tennis balls. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because,
2: yeah, because that lets us, because when we push the electrons so close to the nucleus of the atom, that lets us put more atoms closer together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you end up with, with just a whole load of nuclei all packed in together which is why neutron stars are incredibly dense one second i've heard
2: an amazing factor as well and i don't know if this is bunk i can't remember where i heard it but (laughs) let me ask you if you took like say a a ball of neutron star and dropped it through the earth it would go all the way through because it's so dense is that is that crap or is that like (laughs) it would
0: it would leave a pretty big hole so yeah i mean probably i i Guess what it would just do is it would just kind of v- drill a hole through and then kind of bounce back the other side, yeah, or something. But yeah, okay. I, yeah, so interesting thought experiment. I thought <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, please don't do it when I'm around. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. So how are black holes different from from? So yeah. d- black holes are also really dense, mm. um, and they form as a as a result of supernovas. But how when 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 the supernova would, when that star takes that trajectory, how is it any different to a n- neutron star?
0: Well, a neutron star, there's still um, there's there's still actually there's real matter there. There's you know neutrons, and you can do you can do physics about the physics of neutron stars, and there are all these uh, really strange quantum effects in there. And mm-hmm. neutron stars have starquakes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. A black hole is is where the mass is packed so tightly that it it has it's, there is no there's no real structure to it. There aren't even neutrons or electrons. It's just matter that's packed so tightly that even light can't escape. Mm. And we call it a singularity, mm. which is a pretty clever way of saying that we don't know, <laughs> really know Donut, what it yeah. is. But <laughs> you know, at that point, you don't even have neutrons. You don't even have that particle structure of matter anymore. That's yeah. just 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 mass in an incredibly tiny space Mm. so black holes are uh i mean a a black hole really in some ways hardly even exists the event horizon of the black hole is what exists which is just the point where you know there's once you're past that event horizon once you're inside it then Mm. that's you know you're not getting out um which is why black holes always seem really uh, creepy
2: I had one quick question about how... So we've just been talking about supernovae. Yeah, we've been going on for a long time already. So much interesting <laughs> stuff to discuss. Um, we talked about supernovae. How rare are, are these events? Because you, we mentioned about, before about the low-mass stars are, are very common. But how how frequent are supernovae? Are they happening all the time? or? Uh,
0: they happen. happening... Well, in our galaxy, we expect about one supernova a year. Okay, yeah. Um, and... Um, so, well, most of them obviously happen on the far side of the galaxy and are mm. hard to see. Yeah. Um, but we expect something like that. Um, they're not, they do happen kind of all the time. Yeah. But the last time we saw a supernova that was really easy to see in our galaxy was, you know, hundreds of years ago. Mm. Um, because that would, those, because they need to be close by mm. for us to see them. Yeah. For us to be able to really see it.
1: See what's going on i was i was before you shifted the topic and maybe we can kind of like um wrap it up soon mm. because i know you you probably have things to do nick and we've been going on for almost 50 minutes now okay um, <laughs> um, <laughs> time flies um with these sort of conversations um you know that uh, when you when you describe the black hole where matter basically almost, like, becomes one thing where they, there aren't any distinguishing factors mm. like nuclei or whatever. It reminded me of a book that I was reading by Lawrence Krauss, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and he was talking about superconductors. Yeah. And and it reminded me of how, like, superconductors function almost as one entity and, mm. and it's very analogous. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, well, superconductors, superconductors are one of these strange things where... The these incredibly microscopic quantum effects suddenly have suddenly appear in the real world mm. um, because you've actually got this um, these uh, these um, these com- pairs of electrons which are able to function as frictionless particles. So, in some ways, I think I would probably draw more of an al- analogy with neutron stars, where again you have the actual quantum, the quantum effects with all of their strangeness actually show up in real measurable things mm-hmm. um, and that's um, and so that's that's a very, that's a really strange thing when you see a, a superconductor, it's just you know, you get something and it's not and you just make it cold enough and suddenly
2: yeah.
0: um, you know a magnet floats or yeah. something like that and that's just um, that's, that's quantum physics suddenly showing up at the at the level, level of your hands, yeah. which is really strange. Yeah. <laughs> Quantum physics is a lot easier to deal with when it doesn't intrude on your everyday, <laughs> 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 everyday <laughs> <laughs> intuition. <Okay. say. laughs> Even
1: though it does all the time. Yeah. you yeah. just don't notice it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: That's
1: funny. Um, okay, so we're reaching about 50 minutes now. Um, I guess what I want to end with is just to get you, um, to ask you if you're doing any sort of research projects, taking on research students, mm. PhD, or uh, MRS students at the moment. Uh, we've got we.
0: Um, I work with a, with a few other astronomers in the uh, in the school, and we uh, we always have research students around, and we're, we're always uh, uh, looking for people who are who are interested and want to do this kind of stuff. So we're working on um, getting the uh, mapping out the local universe by looking at the redshifts of local galaxies. We're looking at cosmic rays. Um, we're looking at uh, surveying the, the gas clouds in, the, in as much of the galaxy as we can using a radio telescope out of mm. Uh We're working on machine learning, trying to understand how we can pick out all of the galaxies in a gigantic amount of data that's coming our way in the mm. next year or so. Um, so we're, we've got... We've, there's a lot of different stuff that we're doing, mm. and uh, if people are, are interested they can always get in touch they can
1: always find us and find us for a chat yeah great thank you so much Nick. we really appreciate it yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks. fascinating discussion a lot of fun
2: yeah thank you <laughs>